I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Waiting for you in the next hour, it's a band day trotter called A Belly Full of Dynamic Tension. A writer who once drove 90 minutes just to see Eddie Van Halen's front door. And a memoir writer whose latest book offers this advice about how to write the perfect self-help book. I am a complete and total up. Which is exactly why I am equipped to write this book and tell you how to live. It's, it's... From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with writer Ryan White. This is how author Augustin Burroughs and music from Radiation City. It's all coming up on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. You also have comedy from Faces for Radio Poet. You've also got comedy from Faces for Radio, also poet Scott Poole with the always relevant reflections by the pool, and music from our house band, led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. Again, my name is uh, Luke Burbank. Right over there, we have from the long winters, Mr. John Roderick. Hello. Thank you. Uh, John, we have a dynamic slate of guests lined up for today's show. We've got author Augustin Burroughs. He's here to talk about his new self-help book. We've got the Portland-based band Radiation City and a guy named Ryan White. He's a writer for The Oregonian, and he presents us with this essay about the guy that he thinks he is versus the guy that he actually is, mm -hmm. which I think raises the question to you and to me. Do you want to know the guy you actually are because... I vote for no on that for me. I say let sleeping, possibly drunk dogs lie. Mm -hmm. That is my approach. What about you? Well, unfortunately for me, I have made a rigorous study of myself. <laughs> and I know exactly who I am, which is why I am catastrophically depressed. <laughs> and every morning I wake up and take another inventory of myself and then roll over and sleep another four hours. So that's my life in a nutshell. Yeah. It's a miracle we got him here today, you guys. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm in show business, because it doesn't require that I be anywhere before four. Yeah. <laughs> I saw something. It's very sad when you start a sentence with, I saw something on Facebook that made me think. But <laughs> I was did. It, was it their terms so of I'm use gonna, policy? Yeah. yeah. Somebody wrote something on Facebook that was like, think about all of the really, really mean things that other people have said about you. And if you don't think that's happened, think about all of the really mean things you've said about other people. Mm, yeah. And then think about the number of people you know, and then imagine them saying those things about you. And that was when, when I went into my depressive funk, and I called that 2012. Did not emerge <laughs> from my bedroom for one year based on that information. Well, you know, we live in a culture now where, where uh, everyone is depressed or has attention deficit disorder. And so we're all taking medicine. I'm assuming that everyone in here, if they're not on medicine your kids are on medicine, or your grandkids are on medicine. And everyone is trying to solve 
our mental problems, when really being depressed is the only reasonable response to the world, and <laughs> you, are, you are trying to medicate yourselves to a happy place where no real happy place exists. So, my... We'd like to start the show off on kind of a high note um, <laughs> here on Livewire. <laughs> Uh, I would like to also mention, this is, you can't tell if you're listening to us on the radio, but we have confiscated his shoelaces and his belt before the show, so everybody's safe. I just want to kind of put that out there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, feel like, um, I feel like kids are uh, wild animals, and they should be uh, employed mostly building trail for the National Park Services. Mm-hmm. Uh, school is a total waste of time. I feel, mm-hmm. Would you like me to go on? I feel like... Yeah, no, uh, it's good. I think we've already... I, I, Yep, four lawsuits have yeah, already right. been launched in the time you've been saying these things. I keep forgetting that the teacher demographic is a big part of who it's listens to the It's pretty much show. our bread and butter, so you've got to... Livewire Radio and public radio in general is, is built upon people who, A, love tote bags mm-hmm. as thank you gifts, uh-huh. and B, do in fact believe that the children are our future. Yeah. So putting them to work on the trails, railroad style, it's not going to go over well with them. Yeah, but think of the great trail system that we would have. Yeah. I would just like uh, you to know that uh, when you have a thought about me and the real person I am, Roderick, please Mm -hmm. keep it to yourself. That's my request to you. John Roderick, ladies and gentlemen, he'll be with us throughout the show. We have a great musical guest coming up for you right now. At the end of last year, NPR called our musical guest one of ten bands you should have known in 2012, which you may not have known, and I'm going to be honest with you, we were all kind of judging you over it a little bit, just a little bit. But... You can hippen yourself up right now by listening to them play a track off their upcoming record, Animals in the Median. Please welcome Radiation City to Livewire. Of our side. 
Celebration City. Right here on Livewire. Fire sure feels nice, Slim. Reckon it do, Boyd. Heck, it must have rained on us sun up to sundown today. Cattle didn't seem to mind much. <laughs> Them cattle never seem to mind anything much. Well, I reckon we hit Ogallala by Wednesday. Yeah, if we're lucky. What's that song you're playing? Ain't no song. I'm just noodling. Sure is pretty. Nah, I ain't no good. Better than me. <laughs> yeah, well. Man, look at all them stars. Yep. Rough day like this always seems to melt away when you got a belly full of beans, strong arms wrapped around you, the sound of a guitar, and a view like that. Yep. Wait, what? <laughs> kind of makes it all worthwhile, you know? Yeah, but what'd you say about arms? Oh, what's up? Oh, uh, you know, like when you're in your tent and you're all kind of wrapped up, snug as a bug, and you're kind of hugging yourself? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably going to need to reshoe Buster tomorrow. Yeah, Curly's do as well, I reckon. Now, those horses throw their shoes more times than I take off my boots. Heck, I don't think I've ever seen you in bare feet, Slim. <laughs> you practically sleep with your boots on. <laughs> yeah. You probably could use one of my famous foot massages. Wouldn't that be something? Wait, what are you doing? I'm coming over to give you a foot massage, silly. Heck, Slim, I was just joking. What? Yeah. Yeah, me too. I, just I don't around. need no foot rub. Oh, no, no, of course not. <laughs> yeah. Are you okay, Boyd? What? Oh, yeah, yeah sure, sure, sure. You're just funny. acting funny, that's all. Yeah, I'm probably just tired, that's all. All right. Well, I'm going to turn in for the night, Slim. Okay, Boyd. I shaved before dinner. My chin is smooth and powdered. <laughs> There's no stubble whatsoever. What? What? Nothing. Nothing. What's up? What are you driving at over there, Boyd? Driving at? What? Yeah, look. All right. I do about 10 cattle trains a year, and every other guy they stick with me thinks that just because of that one movie, it's going to be one of them journeys rife with homosexual encounters. <laughs> uh, Slim, what movie are you even talking about? You know what movie, Boyd? Argo? No. I, no, not Argo. Well, I don't know. Uh, Madagascar 3, maybe? Uh, damn it, Boyd. You know the one I'm talking about. The town? Oh, now, there you go with Ben Affleck again. Well, the man has reinvented his career, Reinvented Slim. his career? Yes. He's been a box office draw year in and year out for the last decade. Heck, he's only 41, and he's got that Terrence Malick movie in the shoe. Well, he only got that Terrence Malick movie because of Argo. No, he didn't. Yeah. Listen, it went into production way before Argo. How did we get talking about this? Now, look, just quit dancing around the issue and ask like a grown man. Just ask what you want to ask me. I reckon you finally stumped me on that one, Slim. I ain't got no clue what you're talking about. We're two young cowboys out in the middle of nowhere. You with your Stetson-like musk and me with my dewy honeysuckle breath and, and my tent flap that always hangs open and... Do you know it's going to get down to about 35 degrees tonight? Oh. I'll be in in a minute. Okay. See you then. Sean McGrath and Andrew Harris. You're listening to Livewire with music, conversation, and comedy. We stimulate every part of your brain, including the part that's wondering whether or not you lock the front door... I mean, you do it every day. Like, how could you not do it? But then I guess it's possible. I mean, it's not probable, but it's, it's possible. You know what? This is going to bother you for the rest of the show. Just go home, handle it, and then we'll wait. But you live where? <laughs> that we're going with the show. We're just going to wait for you to catch up with us. 
which will feature writer Ryan White, author Augustin Burroughs, and more from Radiation City. We will be right back with more Live Wire. All right, next up, Ryan White is a music writer for the Oregonian newspaper. He recently wrote a review of a Prince show in which he posited that Prince might actually be the Higgs boson particle that scientists have been searching for (laughs) since the 1970s. It's an interesting theory that a total of zero scientists are now looking into. (laughs) Tonight, though, Ryan brings the tale of the man he once thought he was, but sadly may never be. Please welcome Ryan White to Livewire. Last year, on one of those dying days of summer that always make me feel like every Bob Seger song except probably Katmandu and Shakedown, I stood atop a dune staring out at the Pacific Ocean. On the horizon, kiteboarders skimmed across the water, and at first I thought, I could do that. And then I thought, I should do that. I imagined myself on the ocean, catching wind, grabbing air, bursting through a cool salt spray and into the bright wide open, at once untethered from, yet totally connected to the earth. Life and all its possibilities must seem limitless in a moment like that. Later, my obscenely fit friends and I would haul our gear to shore, looking ruggedly awesome. Someone would start a fire by sparking a rock against his five o'clock shadow. (laughs) Food would be grilled. Everyone would get drunk. Couples would wander off and have obscenely fit people sex under the stars. (laughs) I guess I was imagining myself in Point Break. But it beat casting myself in one of those Viagra commercials about the age of taking action, which, let's be honest, are really just about a few guys who got out of the market in time to retire with boats and ranches. Anyway, there I was on the sand dune, dreaming like a young man when the wisdom of a slightly older man came knocking. On my knee, apparently, because it was aching. Maybe it was the weather. Reality set in. The more likely scenario was this. If I managed to get up on the board at all, a wind gust would grab the kite, yank me in the air, crash me back down. Again and again, like a clown in nature's drunk tank. (laughs) Probably... I'd drown, only to wash up amongst the truly adventurous. Their mellows unfairly harsh, they would spark their fire, cook their food, drink their beer, have their sex. But it would be a melancholy sexy time. And even dead, I'd feel bad about that. I went back to the rental to open a beer, search for some Advil, and sigh. Practical me is increasingly a problem. Practical me is full of nagging reminders about what happened when rugged me called more shots. Take camping. For two glorious years, I was a platinum member of Marriott's rewards program. (laughs) I got a bottle of wine every time I checked in. Nature's never given me anything but a sore back. But I have a friend who also doesn't like to camp. He did, however, buy a Jeep once, and he felt like he should take it camping. So we set out with cheap gear and no food. We hiked in, turned around, got back in the car, stopped at a store for food and beer, drove to the campground, made a sad, useless fire that didn't so much flicker as wheeze. And finally, when we turned in, we spent all night saying, did you hear that? What do you think that was? Is it hungry? 
I've snowboarded once. Never have I been so proud to do something not as well as the six-year-old who shot past me just off the lift. <laughs> a six-year-old who probably made a dozen more runs that day while I hunched sipping a Mountain Dew like the oldest sap ever conned by X Games marketing. <laughs> a sap certain his tailbone had been driven through his spleen. <laughs> Cowboy work? Tried it. Moved cattle in Eastern Oregon. Bought an Indiana Jones hat for the occasion. Did I know how to ride a horse? Of course not. Did the horse know I didn't know how to ride? Absolutely. Was I asked to work an edge of the canyon on my own? Strangely, yes. Or maybe not so strangely. It was a pretty convincing hat. I nudged the horse into gear and ambled off, giving a pull on the front of my hat and trying to spit cool. We came to a pond, whereupon my trusted steed took it upon herself to stop for a drink, and then just kind of hang out. We talked. I asked, her, I asked her thoughts on perhaps moving. She cast a weary eye back at me, bored. I hopped down, grabbed the reins, and tried to walk her along. We got halfway up the hill when she figured that was far enough. I climbed back up and gave her a kick as I'd been instructed. Interesting thing, spurs exist for a reason. I was wearing hiking boots, the hat having eaten up most of the budget. Another weary eye my way. I reached into my pocket and pulled out a lollipop, a Jolly Rancher, no less. I went to work on the problem until the business end of the sucker popped off and jammed in my throat. In that moment, I had one thought: someone's going to tell my mom I choked to death on a piece of candy atop a horse I couldn't reason with. In the ensuing panic, I managed to perform the Heimlich on myself using only the saddle horn and the weight of my embarrassment. That's why they still tell that, camp, that story around campfires and burns. When I got back to Portland, I left the hat in the trunk of the rental car. I wasn't going to need it, just as sure as I don't need to invest in a wetsuit. Practical me had spent that money already. There's the mortgage, the car needs an oil change, and I've got a daycare habit that would embarrass a coke addict. <laughs> I've got a lot of grown-up stuff to do, and my daughter would like me to come to a tea party. I don't have to bake or wear a bonnet, but I do end up sitting next to Elmo, and that's been awkward lately. <laughs> I still try to find time for rugged me. I play hockey. I own a circular saw. Could I build a cabin in the Canadian wilderness? I don't know. Last thing I built was a garden box. If I've reached the age of anything, it's the age of practical awareness. The truth is, standing on the dune, that water looked cold, and there's no rule that says you have to spend the day in the ocean to make a fire and drink. I checked. <laughs> Plus, I like those tea parties. More than bumming out the beach bums, my untimely demise would negatively impact my my ability to be dad, and I've been digging that a lot. Rugged me might not like it, but I'm cool with it. I'm old enough to accept that I'm no longer the guy I never was. That was Ryan White. I want to get John Roderick back up here from the Long Winters. Hi, Ryan. And keep Ryan Hi, White of the Oregonian on stage because he's Ryan terrified. Yep, mostly that, but also because we share something, the three of us. We all saw Prince live recently as he was yes. Yes, we did. on his uh, tour of very small venues. And in the Seattle area, John Roderick and I were actually at the same Prince show. I thought it was the best music concert I'd ever been to, uh, to in my life. I cried during Purple Rain. Some of that was about some personal stuff I was working through, but a lot of it was about the concert. John Roderick wrote in the Seattle Weekly that uh, he thought the show was a bit of a sham. So, A, we can't be friends anymore. And B, we have a, a, another music writer here who saw them as well. Roderick, let's start with you. Why, why are my feelings invalid when it comes to crying during Purple Rain? Well, uh, obviously Prince is a master, one of the great artists of our time. And I am not a person who's going to sit here and say that Prince can't do whatever he wants. I have enjoyed watching Bob Dylan 
fart into a shot glass for the last 30 years. Yep. And, and, and call it music. And that, that was the farting into a shot glass tour, so people should have known what they were getting into. But what, what Prince did was he said, I'm going to go play the clubs. I'm going to come to the, to the rock clubs, which is my house. The rock clubs. I, have, I do not have the option of playing on a giant levitating space guitar. <laughs> I, the clubs are where I live. And Prince came to the club, my club, charged $250 for a ticket. And he played his stadium show with the stadium light show and the stadium set list and the stadium guitar sound. and the sta- Everything was, it was the stadium, the big screen with all the Art Institute video mm-hmm. programs, you know, like people walking. It was in weird slow when motion. video toasters went by. Video toasters. That was an odd was, throwback. It to was basically Windows days. 95 screensavers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you for figuring out how to tell these people that joke. And I felt like if you're coming to the clubs, teach us something that we don't already know, and don't just come do your thing in a little room. Because it's not... Well, we call that live wire, so be careful. Yeah. Um, no, 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 I'm an expert on doing my thing in a little room, but... <laughs> but I don't charge $250. Right. Ryan, what about uh, when Prince showed up in Portland? What did you make of the show? I loved it, and I loved it because I'm a guy who's always been frustrated by the times that I've seen him. He's occasionally touched the guitar. And I think he's one of the five, ten great guitarists that have ever Agreed. walked around on this planet. And so it was a blast to see him play guitar for 90 minutes. The frustrating thing to me was it pointed out a deficiency in, in this city of Portland, which is that I can get a phallic-shaped donut dipped in Fruit Loops at 3 in the morning, right. but I can't buy an electric guitar at 3 in the morning. And I really wanted to buy an electric yeah. guitar when I walked out of that show. Yeah. The Parents of America have instituted a three-day waiting period for people buying electric guitars. Say that as one of the Parents of America. Okay, so this was the big thing when Prince did this tour because he played very small venues. The spot he played in Seattle held 1,200 people, right? He wasn't going to play any of his big hits, or we should say most of the concert was songs that no one had heard before because they were off of a record that, let's be honest, none of us bought, right? And the... The question of if bands or if singers who have songs that are really, really well-known and popular and people love them, they've been playing them for a long time, do they owe it to the assembled audience, the people who paid 250 bucks a ticket, or even more in Portland, as I understand it, do they owe it to them to play their hits? Music writers. Ho! Some artists, you want to hear the hits. And if they don't play it, they're being a pain in the neck. Some artists, like Prince, I feel like I wasn't expecting the hits. I was expecting Prince to funk me right out the door. Mm. What I was not expecting was Prince to play a song, the chorus of which was, I'm your driver, you're my screw, and then expect the audience to sing it along with him. (laughs) And then get kind of offended and like, come on, everybody, I'm your driver, you're my screw. And it was like, no one can make me say those words. (laughs) Not even Prince. Je refuse. I would like to see eighty-four. I would like to see eighty-four Prince have a, have a discussion with with two thousand thirteen Prince about those lyrics, but yeah. they're very different people. But I mean, you, you look at you mentioned Dylan and the, the the classic farting into a shot glass tour. Uh, yeah, we've still all got the t-shirts. Um, <laughs> tough to wear in public. Um, you know, I mean, when he was here last, he did a, like they closed with "Blowing in the Wind," and it was almost as a doo-wop. Yeah. Um, and if you're going to do your hits this far in, I you know I, I didn't think that really worked. But it was fun to see him trying with it. Well, the thing about seeing Dylan, in my experience, is if you're at the back of the room, it's ludicrous. And as you get closer and closer to him, you realize how dangerous he really is. Yeah. And if you are right at the, at the front of the stage watching him do a doo-wop version of Blowing in the Wind, you realize he really did sell his soul at some point. There are a lot of these outdoor musical festivals that are big. Now, I went to one where Bob Dylan was playing in the front, and in the back it actually was ludicrous, the rapper. And that was... <laughs> That was a hell of a show. All right, John Roderick and Ryan White, thank you very much. Very 
You're listening to Livewire Radio, sponsored in part by Ergo Depot, an ergonomic furniture pioneer located right here in Portland, Oregon. Or if you're not here, it's located right over there in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> Most of the world sits in uncomfortable office chairs all day, and it's Ergo Depot's mission to solve that problem with a whole line of office furniture specifically designed for comfort and good health. Because as any Northwesterner will tell you, just because it's miserable outside doesn't mean you have to be miserable inside. You're coccyx. <laughs> More information can be found at ergodepot.com. Welcome back to Any Questions. I'm Jonathan Dimbley, broadcasting today from Hartford Studios in the Windmill Centre, Deddington, Oxfordshire. Today we're talking about Britain's current recession and whether there's a way out. With, with us today is the Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government, Eric Pembley, and Emily Thornbury, an economist on Britain's Global Agenda Council. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for Good having to be us. Here. So as you know, we take our questions from Twitter. So let's start off with an incisive question from at Nozzle, who asks... With the frightening prospect of a triple recession, is it time for a plan B, new chancellor, or both? Pembley. Well, I'm certainly on the same page as Blorch Nozzle, but unlike Blorch Nozzle, I wouldn't pin this one on our chancellor. The social division we have today started a generation ago with the Tampit budget of 62. That's an interesting point. Uh, our next question is from at BitchesBCrayCray362, <laughs> who asks... Moving forward, is it possible to model the distributional effects of impending austerity measures to ameliorate any negative outcomes for low-income families? Emily? Mm, that is an extremely difficult question, Bitches Be Cray Cray 363. Uh, 362. Sorry? Uh, you said Bitches Be Cray Cray 363. It's Bitches Be Cray Cray 362. Ah, terribly sorry. Tough but fair question, Bitches. Modelling is always difficult with austerity measures because every culture is different, but I think we can look to Greece to tell us... Uh, sorry to interrupt, but we have a suggestion from at I like big butts and I can lie, 73, who says, Modelling isn't the issue. We've seen the distributional effects of austerity during economic retrenchment in the Wellington budget and as a micro-simulation. It failed miserably. Wow. I like big butts and I can lie. 73 normally has such cogent things to say, but I believe he is way off the mark here. No, no, I disagree. I think I like big butts is exactly on the mark. The Institute for Fiscal Studies states that... All right, look, look whether we're talking about Blorch nozzle suggestions or I like big butts and I can lie, 73... Or even, won't you take me to Pooty Town or Socket 79s from last week? You can't deny... No, I prefer at Kitty's 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 idea from two weeks ago about capital investments in the middle class, frankly. Yes, Kitty's 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 has always been fiscally innovative. But don't you no, see... I'm sorry, it looks like we have to take a break there, but when we return, we'll hear from at Bitches Be Cray Cray 363. Oh, he's and back. No, this is actually 363. Uh, that was 362 before. Oh, sorry, my mistake. Uh, we'll also hear very compelling arguments from at I did not pay a lot for that muffler. You're listening to Any Questions. John McGrath, Andrew Harris, and Laura Faye Smith. If you've read the New York Times bestselling book or even seen the film Running with Scissors, you already know that Augustine Burroughs had a pretty challenging childhood raised by the unconventional family of his mother's psychiatrist. But he survived to write about it, named one of the 15 funniest people in America by Entertainment Weekly. He's also written about surviving alcoholism in Dry and surviving Christmas in You Better Not Cry. His latest book, This Is How, Surviving What You Think You Can't, was just released in paperback. It's a series of memoir pieces that also serve as a kind of darkly funny self-help book with advice on things like how to ride an elevator, how to be fat, how to feel sorry for yourself, and how to make yourself uncomfortable, and maybe why you should. Hopefully we'll all learn something tonight. Please welcome Augustine Burroughs to Livewire. Well, hello there. Hi. You were talking backstage about 
doing sit-ups, and you were saying you were self-conscious about your physique these days. I believe you, the quote from you was, because I eat. Oh, and no, yet, a whole part of this book that you wrote is about how to get over caring what people think about you. I'm totally not self-conscious. I don't care anymore. That was my point. My point was that I used to do things like that, and now, if it doesn't have frosting on it, I don't want it. <laughs> no, I don't. I totally am over that. What is the tactic in the grocery store that you that you resorted to at one time to try to just get past being concerned with people's opinion on you? I, well, I, I don't, you know, I don't really think I was ever a grocery store goer because I've always lived in New York. We had, like, I would order in. My body f- shape is like a tube. It's like a snake that swallowed a tennis ball. <laughs> and all the men in my family are like that, like skinny, skinny legs. One guy I remember once when I used to work out, he was this tall, tall guy, big on top, and he looked at me and he said, Ooh-wee, look at you, you and me, we come from the same coop. <laughs> and I didn't get it for like a year. Seriously, I would think about it and be like, what? Wait a minute, chicken coop, what? It's pretty funny though, right? I mean, it was quick. Um, the name of this book actually changed between the hardback and the paperback <laughs> version. The hardback right. was... Overcoming shyness, molestation, fatness, spinsterhood, grief, disease, luxury, and decrepitude. And now it's just called Surviving What You Think You Can't. I know. People were like, what? Decrepta what? I changed it. People, I felt like they thought it was funny, and then they'd be like, you'd, you know, their faces, oh, funny new, oh, suicide and a child dies? What? So I wanted to give it like a more, a subhead that telegraphed that it's like actually like an owner's manual for your brain and not like a parody of, you know, self-help. It's like there are no air marks around the self-help. It's actual helpful, helpful things for the self. Well, one of the things that you wrote that I found surprising was you said you think apologies are really overrated, basically. Oh, yeah. You think that's... Was that surprising to you? Well, yeah, because I feel like in my own life I've had incidents where it's been really meaningful for me that someone at least gets that they did something and the same... It's meaningful. No, I agree. It's nice. It's pleasant. It's nice. It's nice to have one. But the, the, the problem with an apology is that, like, if someone wrongs you, and I want to go deeper than just, like, apology, like, an admission, like, if someone, you know, harms you, if you've been victimized by somebody, it's really easy to sort of put your life and your future on hold until you get acknowledgement, you know? Like, I want them to admit what they did to me. I want them to just acknowledge that their actions were wrong and hurtful. And it's a, it's a desire for fairness, or for as close to fairness as you can get, or for accountability. And it's irrelevant, because you have to move on anyway. You can't just sort of park yourself, settle in, and go after that apology. You've got to go after your future. You know, you've got to go after your life. That's what I mean. It's like apologies are wonderful when they happen and they can fill you with, you know, life and it's great. But don't wait around for it. If, don't, you know, it's like if someone drives over your foot and then they drive away, you can either figure out, you know, how you're going to walk with your new bionic foot or what you're going to do. <laughs> or you can, like, contact lawyers and send out the bloodhounds and try to track that bad person down, it, it, which is, you know, life-sucking. I think if you, were, if you were talking to a therapist, they would say something to the effect of, you know, you have to give the other person room to have their experience, and then you need to just work on what your experience is within that moment. Is some of the stuff in this book your that, version of things that therapists might also say? Yeah, what you said, just that makes sense. You do. You have to focus on, on you now. Now. Like, if, if you've been victimized in any way, you know, you've... A lot of things are terribly unfair and don't work the way they should, you know? And um, the dumber person does get the job, you know? And, oh well. It's like if you, um, I, I, you know, talk to a lot of kids who, who freak out, you know, young kid teenagers, 16, 17, 15, who are concerned because maybe one of their parents is a drug user or an alcoholic or, and, you know, like, like running with scissors, and well, maybe they have a mentally ill parent. And my feeling about that is if, the, if you have two parents, you know, who love you, you've, you know, that's lotto. If you have one parent who loves you, that's still lotto, you know? What if you have half a parent who loves the lotto? It's, that's a scratchy card. That's yeah. a scratchy card because yeah. you've got a parent. Yeah. But if you've got, like, bad parents or no parents, 
parents are a luxury. You can be fine. We're talking to Augustine Burroughs. His new book is This Is How, Surviving What You Think You Can't. You write very compellingly in this book about the idea of moving past memory, moving past things like that. In your own mm-hmm. life, you were sexually molested. How have you been able to move past that? Because that's a really hard thing for people. Yeah, it's a hard thing because people feel haunted by the past. But when you just really pause for a moment and think about it, actually the past doesn't haunt us. We haunt it. We go back and we think about it. Maybe you're you know, in the shower using a new shampoo and the smell of it triggers a memory of abuse. And it can stop there, or you can go back and recall it and recall it and recall it and relive it. And that's not helpful. Because the past is no longer actually real. Um, there certainly is evidence of the past in our minds and our bodies. You know, there are scars that remain, but it is gone. It's a fantasy world to go back and try to rehash the past and live through it. And I, I didn't believe that at first. You know, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I, I tried to work through the past and think about, you know, and it's a trap. The way to, to move forward literally is to move forward because, you know, right now, this is the moment right now that's actually real, and it's a pretty good bet there's going to be one coming up. But what happened, happened, and you can't ever have the real context for it, partly because you can't ever know the other person involved. You don't know their motives. You don't know. You know, it's like if you look at... Um, a car accident on the opposite side of the road and the front of the car is crushed in and you're driving by fast, you might think, oh, oh no, everyone in that car is dead. This is awful and it ruins your day. But if it's a really well-made car, it's designed to crumple up and the people in the front could be sitting there perfectly fine thinking, I always hated Brown. I'm so glad this happened, you know? <laughs> it's, it's about your perspective on it. You have a chapter about the key to feeling like how to feel like yeah, What's I'm good the at trick? that. I'm good at that. Um, it's that this is all about like a rail again. I hate affirmations. Affirmations are really popular with a lot of people, and that's when you feel you say the opposite. If you f- have a perceived flaw, like if you lack confidence, you know, you look in the mirror and you're like, "I'm a very confident person." And that's my pre-show warm-up, by the way. I had to do that in rehab. We had to go around and like. I don't want alcohol, and I love myself. And it's part of a lot of recovery programs, but I always felt like, this is ridiculous. This is like, sprinkle the baby powder on the dog poo, and it won't smell. It's like, if you feel like it's much better not to actually look in the mirror and lie to yourself. I feel so happy. It's really better to get an accurate baseline reading. I feel like before I looked in the mirror, but now that I'm looking in the mirror at myself, I feel like even worse, because now I feel fat in addition and old. And I feel stupid for saying this because I feel like it's not this way for other people. So now I feel like I am a hermit. Because if, if you're honest with yourself, it's like, okay, it's like this. Now you know exactly, really, how bad you feel. If you want to go to California, you need to know actually where you are to begin with, right? So if you want to be happy, you need to know exactly where you are and be honest with yourself. You can't lie to yourself. Plus, um, I was greatly relieved. Thank God for the Canadians. The Canadian researchers, they got out their caged monkeys, their white lab coats, and their clipboards, and they studied affirmations, and they found something out. Affirmations don't work except for people who don't need them, which is great. That's really great. That means that, like, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie could look in the mirror and go, I'm beautiful, I'm wealthy, and I love myself, and it would make them feel even more so. You know, it's like, so affirmations don't belong, and that's what I'm saying about that chapter you asked. Well, let me ask you this then. You are somebody who's been through a lot in your life, and yet now you have written books that have been on the New York Times bestseller list. They've been uh, made into a film. Uh, You've enjoyed a tremendous amount of success. People uh, are big fans of yours. Do you have way fewer problems now than you used to have? No, I have more. No, the problems are different. They're they're, Because it's all internal. My head is the same, unfortunately, that it's always been. 
So the difference is that, like, I go out on, like, here I am in public. Hi, wow. I would never travel on my, if I, like, I would never travel normally or leave the apartment ever. I'm, you know, I'm a hermit. And so, and I have, like, books I've got to turn in, you know. So the problems don't go away. What's, what's helped me, though, is that I'm, um, I've loved getting older, and I'm much more myself than I ever was before. And, you know, I'm at the point now about a lot of things where I just, I don't care how I come across. You know, if I, I don't care. And that's relaxing, and it makes me just much more able to be myself. So it's, certain things are worse. Like when you get older, you know, your parts and pieces start falling off like hubcaps. <laughs> and I was talking to one of the musicians, and we were both like with our glasses, like up there, because there's no good place. And it's like, why can't they fix that? We were saying, it's stupid. Give me baby, why, they have, why can't I have baby eyes put in or something? Don't we, can't we grow them? Well, it's, it's hell on the like babies. I feel like if you're a writer, you know, there's wait lists for everything. And my heart's good enough, my liver, whatever, it's fine, I guess. But give me some baby eyes. I need them to see things. Or dog eyes. I don't actually need color, you know. So dog eyes, but I like dogs. Yeah. I like babies, too. We are really pushing the scientific envelope uh, on this show today. Well, Augustine Burroughs, I think it's a fascinating book, and, uh, and I think everybody should grab it. And congratulations on all of your work, and thanks for coming on Livewire. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast. That was Augustine Burroughs. His book is This Is How, Surviving What You Think You Can't. We will be right back with more Livewire. Now with a poem for self-defeating optimists, please welcome the author of Hiding from Salesmen and the Sliding Glass Door, poet Scott Poole with Reflections by the Pool. How to feel bad. If it's a sunny day and you're walking along the bay hand in hand with your dearest love, with sailboats cruising by on a smooth jazz-infused breeze, and you, by some chance, just happen to stick your foot in a huge bucket of warm and fragrant fish guts, then you should feel bad about this. <laughs> Don't look for the good side, Pollyanna. There is no good side to soaking your leg mid-calf in five gallons of unimaginable goo that smells the same as being sewn into a month-old carcass of a whale on a hot August afternoon. You're not helping yourself, pretending to be on a romantic lark or casually starting a fashion trend. You won't soon be revered on a Paris runway swinging this chum bucket about spraying slop on Joan Rivers and the editor of Vogue. You aren't the Lewis and Clark of unique foot skin treatments, and there will be no orthopedic Sacagawea to point west in the bow of your shoe. And don't try to pretend that the horrific vessel of slime that is now your lower left extremity doesn't feel like it's being digested by something living down there, possibly by the thousands. When people ask you why your foot is in a bucket of fish guts, don't say, oh, it's 
a great accessory, or you mean this old thing? And I really must tell you, turning the bucket over on your head to take away from the attention on your foot is really the direct opposite of any wise decision. No matter how you play it off, no one will be impressed with your Frankenstein robot dance moves. Your reenactment of a Gilligan's Island episode will be amateur at best. And the Professor Anne, Mary Anne, won't be rushing to give you a sensory deprivation study. And no amount of personal affirmations will help. No amount of I'm great and I'm too good for this to happen can save you. You could be four foot eight wearing a nun's habit with an Albanian accent, first name mother, last name Teresa, and you'd still be standing in a very horrible world of wrong. <laughs> it's okay to feel bad about this. Go ahead. It's okay. And take your foot out of the bucket, for Christ's sake. Scott Poole. Reflection by the pool. All right, so here we are at the, uh, nearly the end of the program, and John Roderick from The Long Winters. Uh, do you feel self-improved? You started the show off on a little bit of a bleak note. You, yeah. you encouraged the parents of America to basically turn their kids loose in the wild, building trails. But we had Augustine Burroughs out here right. talking about sort of getting over it and getting past it. I mean, what's, what's the new John Roderick look like going forward? Well, I have to say that I, I do feel like the past doesn't haunt us, that we haunt the past. I thought, that was, I thought that was brilliant, and I'm resolving to, uh, to look for other people from my coop and um, to not obsess over how bad this morning went or how bad earlier tonight during the show was. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to think about now, the present moment, and, uh, and I feel like I have so much to live for and so much to be happy about. You know, it isn't that I don't want to be happy. It's that I feel like uh, feeling like you deserve to be happy is a kind of egotism. Uh, But I'm going to abandon that way of thinking. And I'm going to say, I deserve to be as happy as the next formerly unhappy guy. Words of hope here at the end of this edition of Livewire. All right, before we get out of here, we have your musical guest for the evening. One more time, please give a round of applause to Radiation City.
That's Radiation City. And that's our show. Thank you so much. A big thanks to our guests, Ryan White, Augustin Burroughs, and Radiation City. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Ben Landsberg. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art. The Oregon Cultural Trust and listeners like you fine, fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are Sean McGrath, Trisha Ferguson, Andrew Harris, and Laura Faye Smith. Our head writer is Courtney Hommeister. Show writers are Sean McGrath, Jason Rouse, and Scott Poole. Sound effects and direction by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom. Our house sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Mark Bauk. Show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Vondrelli. Livewire is created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And find us on Twitter and on Facebook at Livewire Radio. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.